You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Guys, it's December 10th already. And I feel like the Advent season is kind of slipping away because Thanksgiving happened and then it just continued going and now we're here at December 10th. And I felt myself struggling a little bit in the process of how I'm usually anticipating things with excitement when it comes to the Advent season because we know about the incarnation of Jesus we, we wait in anticipation of Jesus coming into the world initially and celebrating that, but since we live on the opposite side of that, we are joyfully anticipating his return again. But I find myself struggling because I just feel like everything is, is moving at a rapid rate and I'm missing things that I normally miss. And so my question to you this morning is, are, are you lacking in excitement or anticipation or confidence or even joy this season? Uh, I, I know I, I'm not foreign to the idea that uh, this can be kind of a heavy season for a lot of us. Uh, for, for a lot of people, it's the most wonderful time of the year, but for some people, it's kind of the worst time of year. And I understand that because it could be loss it could be grief, it could be anger, it could be frustration about any number of circumstances, and it seems to magnify itself, particularly in this season. And so I I want to put to rest some things about uh, our anger and frustration that build up sometimes, and I want to focus on God's providential preparation for what this this particular season means for us as those who claim to follow Jesus. So go ahead and click over to the book of John. That's where we're gonna be camping out today in John chapter one. For those of us that have been in church for any length of time, John chapter one is very familiar territory to us. But if you're just getting back into, into church or you're not necessarily understanding what it is about Christianity and you're, you're just kind of here because you found it through an internet search or something like that, we, we want to focus on this particular book of John, the gospel that talks about the coming of Christ. So I'll give you a second just to find that. And I'm actually gonna read a quote from the Tim Keller book that I just referenced that's available to us this morning. He says this, The modern world is filled with people who say they believe in Jesus. They say they understand who he is, but it hasn't revolutionized their lives. There has been no crisis and lasting change. The only way to explain this is that contrary to what they claim, they haven't really grasped the meaning that he is God with us. And that's a good question for us as we kind of begin things this morning. Have you grasped the meaning that he is God with us? Do you have a framework 
for what that means. And when we approach the scriptures, when we approach uh, the spiritual disciplines, when we do things like have our Bible reading or our daily time of prayer, have we just kind of settled into this idea of our spiritual our spirituality is really nothing more than going through the motions uh, i know that i'm supposed to do these things and therefore i do them but i don't get any benefit from them like i think it was dallas willard as as he was talking about a daily bible reading plan you know most of us or a lot of us do the the annual bible reading plan i know i do that but at the end of the year what can you really say other than i read the bible in a year are are you gaining wisdom and insight from that are you ingesting scripture in such a way to where it it forms you more into the character of Christ or is it just a thing that you've been able to say I did that I completed that task let's move on to the next thing and so do we understand or grasp the meaning that God is with us so right at the beginning John chapter 1 verse 1 now we're going to see a theme throughout the entire book of John. If you've read the book of John before, you know that it's all about Christ being both light and life. And so at the very beginning here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I was, don't throw stones or anything at me, but I was reading the Jehovah's Witness um, translation of this particular verse this morning. And so I don't know if you're familiar with that. I don't know if a Jehovah's Witness has showed up on your doorstep recently, but that is interesting as far as John verse, uh, chapter one, verse one, because it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. That's how the Jehovah's Witness will translate John chapter one, verse one. But we know that in the beginning was the Word, it is Christ, and He is God. He is not a God, He is the God. And this is one of the primary Christological passages in all of Scripture. And that Christological term is just a theological nerd term for this is about Jesus. This passage is specifically about who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he has accomplished. You have passages like Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then you hop down to Colossians 1.19, and it says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And then you hop over to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus is God's agent of creation. Through Christ, 
Everything has come into existence. And we worship a Trinitarian God. We know this. He is three distinct persons, yet one divine essence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one that existed before time began. He is eternal. He did not show up on the scene for the first time in Bethlehem. He existed from before time began. There is not a moment where he did not exist. That is Jesus as the second person of the Godhead. Let's continue on. Verse two, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If there is something that we need right now, it is the light of Jesus to illuminate the darkness, not only within our own particular lives, but also the darkness that is pervasive around us. Has anyone encountered a dark moment in their week this week? It's fairly easy. You walk around, you expose yourself to various types of social media, you watch what you watch, you do what you do, you hear what you hear. It is very easy to pick up on the reality that we are enveloped by darkness. But yet, there is something about the light and the life of Jesus that exposes that darkness. And we understand that as Christ's ambassadors, we are walking around as the light of him that manifests itself in the dark places. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, it says in verse 5. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. This is John. And this is everything that RJ and Amber read to us this morning. Isaiah prophesies some 900 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And he says in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Something that is unique about God's providential preparation is that it's intentional. We see from the very beginning, John is very much um, on par with everything that Genesis 1 is communicating. 
John 1 begins much like Genesis 1 begins, but we see that God's preparation for what we anticipate in the Advent season was intentional, and it's intentional for his church. It's intentional for his followers today, but it's also intentional for us individually. God acts in an intentional way in your life to accomplish his purposes. Think about how intentional God has been in your life. If we were to do a quick, I don't know, roll through of the scenes of my life and those were to be projected on these screens right here, number one in my life, it would be horribly embarrassing for you to see all of those things that have happened throughout my life. But number two, you would pick up on the intentionality of God leading me moment by moment through embarrassing situation to embarrassing situation. And then you would begin to wonder, I wonder how you ended up where you are today. And it's the same for all of us. It's the same for all of us, interestingly, who follow Jesus. Because there are things about our past, obviously, that we would rather forget. And thankfully, God has, because as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Hallelujah, Psalm 103. So he doesn't, he doesn't remember those things. But at the same time, due to our fallen and sinful nature, we can recall them. And we understand the significance that they've had in our lives. But God is the one that has sent his son into the world to be both light and life for us. So we always see that God's preparation is something that is intentional. Listen to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. In their hearts, human plan, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. We can plan everything that we want to. But the sovereignty of the God that we serve is the one who orders or establishes our steps. So I want you to think about where you are this particular Advent season. Are you in a place of joyful expectation or are you sort of in this lull where you're just like, yeah, it's really just another season for me. I couldn't care less about what's going on. Then we'll get into 2024 and everything will start over again. I, I don't think that that is what God wants for people who are in, per, in, in passionate pursuit of who Jesus has called us to be, to be transformed into his likeness. And so while God is intentional in, in, the very, in the very mundane tasks, in the ordinary things that we occupy our time with, in the day in and the day out of job, work, home, kids, whatever it is, in those intentional moments where God is consistently revealing himself to you and calling you to be more like him, we also see him accomplishing this in very unimpressive ways. The fact that you're sitting here this morning the church attendance can get, get into this, this routine, right? Where you just feel like you're showing up sometimes and that's all that you really have to offer. 
But God is working in these very unimpressive situations to where he is consistently forming you in the character of Christ, like I just said. But let's talk about God and his preparation being unimpressive. I'm not talking about the way he accomplishes this, but more so the people that he uses to accomplish his purposes. There were many years ago, Queen Elizabeth II, <clears throat> excuse me, she was planning a trip to the United States. And I don't know if you've read much about how royalty travels but royalty travels right. Royalty travels the way that you want to travel. And it was so interesting because uh, news reporters in the United States reported specifically on what she traveled with. That was the extent of the article. It didn't have anything to do with why she was visiting the United States. It had everything to do with what she brought with her. And so listen to this. She had this trip planned for the United States. She had two outfits for every occasion. She had a mourning outfit in case someone were to pass away. She had 40 pints of plasma that she traveled with, because why not? and white kid leather toilet seat covers. She brought her own hairdresser, two ladies maids, and several other attendants. An international trip for royalty could easily be in the millions of dollars. Not thousands, millions. With what she required for her accommodations to be as she traveled. Yet, Queen Elizabeth's very creator, he arrives on the scene within animal holdings to two fearful teenagers six miles south of Jerusalem. Jesus deposits himself into the human race in the humblest of circumstances. You and I, we want the impressive stuff. I'll be honest right now, I want the toilet seat covers. Because I don't know about you, but public restrooms are not my jam at all. And so, if I can get the white kid leather toilet seat covers, sign me up for that, and you can keep the rest. I'll be happy. Maybe that was a little bit too much information to share with you, so we're just gonna move on from that. But God does these things in unimpressive ways, yet we want what's impressive. We want the things that are going to make us stand out. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to seem more important than we are. We want to jump on social media and tell people where we're at and what we're doing. And this is the fancy place that I've been to recently. But it's interesting because in, in, in our individualistic culture, we, we, often, we often do things by means of resumes, right? We, 
we need a new we need a new job we need to consider a new career pathway and so the goal of a resume is to hype ourselves up so that we appear marketable through our accolades through the things that we have accomplished and it's interesting because in antiquity this is what genealogies were about a genealogy was a type of resume. And I want you to go ahead and click over to Matthew chapter one so that we can understand a little bit more about what this means. But in antiquity, you would highlight the people that you were connected to of any fame, of any notoriety, but even in antiquity, people would leave out the other family members that they were connected to that they did not want others to know that they were connected to, okay? Anybody guilty of this? Anybody already dreading what's going to happen on Christmas when you go over to someone's house and your crazy uncle or your weird cousin is gonna be there? Anybody already dreading who they're going to have to interact with as far as their family members come Christmas? I mean, sometimes we would rather write people off, and this is exactly what's happening when people are tied to uh, their genealogies, even, even in the ancient Near East. So it, it's interesting to note that Matthew begins his gospel in a very different way. And we're just gonna take the first six verses of Matthew chapter one to realize that Matthew's doing something very different. Beginning in verse one, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay, so what this is, is this is a family-oriented society of the ancient Near East. And these are people that you would often claim to be connected to, but Matthew, like I said before, is doing something completely opposite. Number one, it's easy to see in any one person of Matthew's original audience would have picked up on this instantly. There are five women listed in the first six verses. Or excuse me, there's five women listed throughout the entire genealogy up to verse 16. But there are five women listed in it. This is something that was unheard of. Um, in this particular type of culture, 
Women were considered second rate, but you did not put them in a genealogy like this. And so that would throw Matthew's readers off. They weren't named, yet five of them were mentioned, as I said, in all 16 verses, three of them being Gentiles. They're not even Jews. By including these women, Matthew is giving his readers recall to some nasty episodes that happened in the Old Testament. Take, for instance, Tamar. Tamar tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her after he had been unjust to her, which, according to the law of Moses, was indeed an act of incest. Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. But look at, look at verse six right here. And Jesus, the father of King David... David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why wouldn't Matthew just go ahead and write in Bathsheba there? He writes, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. What's Matthew doing? He's actually slamming Israel's greatest king, the man after God's own heart, to highlight the fact that David indeed was a moral failure. So on Jesus' resume, right here in the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, you have incest, you have prostitution, you have adultery, you have murder. And the law of Moses prohibited all of these people from gaining access to God, yet they are publicly acknowledged as Jesus' ancestors. Why? Why is that? So Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is showing us that the outcast can be brought into Jesus' family. I need you and myself to let us off the hook. Do you honestly think that there is something in your life or something that has been done by you or something that has been done to you that makes you so far of an outcast that you can't be brought in to the family of God? There's nothing. There's nothing. And I don't know if you need to hear that encouragement today, but there is nothing that you can do to separate you from the reality of being brought into God's family through Jesus. God has been accomplishing this for thousands of years. We just read about it. And he's not gonna stop with you. He's not gonna stop with me. As we'll see later on in the book of John, it says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And what that's communicating to us is that he is those things. He is grace. He is truth. And everything about him is everything that you and I need. And so we are able to be brought in to the family of God through what has been accomplished by Jesus. So if you respond in repentance and faith, believing that Jesus is the only one who can set you free from the immoral failure that you are, listen to this, you will be infected with his holiness and stand righteous before the God of the universe. 
This is why the incarnation is so important, because the incarnation is pointing to the the crucifixion, the eventual resurrection, the ascension, and then the reality that Christ is coming back again. You cannot have any of these things without the initial incarnation. That's why this Advent season is so important, to remind us, to settle us, to help us understand that the incarnation was intentional, that there were surrounding things, uh, there were things surrounding it that were unimpressive, but it was necessary. It was necessary for God to enact his plan of redemption. So this is, this is the incarnation. This is Christ becoming flesh. Isaiah chapter one, verse 18 says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 30, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God acts in very unimpressive ways at times to highlight who he is. There's nothing, there's nothing too overly impressive about most of us in this room and let me submit to you that that's a very good thing because it allows Jesus to be so much more in the interactions that we have with people, we can give a reason for the hope that is within us, especially in a season like this, especially in this Advent season. As I mentioned before, uh, that, that we're surrounded by darkness at times. And since Jesus is both life and light, he is the one that illuminates the darkness. And since we are his ambassadors, we draw from his light so that we can light up the dark spaces around us. Is that what you're doing? Is that what I'm doing? Is the name of Jesus fresh upon our lips to be able to speak a word of encouragement to a person or to give testimony of the hope that is within us? I want to be about that. I want to be about people understanding why there's a difference to the way that I structure my life. And don't get me wrong. We all have horrendous things that happen in our lives. We all have difficult days. 
We all have things that want us to just head to the house early and go ahead and call the day off. But at the same time, Jesus has an expectation for those that follow him. And it's to reveal who he is to a dark world that is perishing. So we see that God's plan is intentional. We see that he uses multiple things that are unimpressive. But God's preparation is effectual. And that's not a word we use very often. So just let me throw a a definition out there for you. Effectual simply means it's successful in producing a desired or intended result. See, for us, specifically in some things, we can be as intentional as we want, yet still fail miserably at it. But God's preparation, his providential preparation, is effectual. It always is successful in producing his desired or intended result. In Acts chapter 2, this is, this is when the Holy Spirit has come and Peter is addressing the crowds. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God's purpose is always effectual. You see it from Christ's humble beginnings in a feeding trough all the way to his crucifixion. And what happens in the tomb is that it bursts forth in resurrection power because Christ defeated sin and he defeated death. It is the very reason for which he came so that we could have life in the richest abundance and stand completely blameless before God himself. This is not our righteousness. It is his righteousness. This is what the atonement means. We get Christ's righteousness in exchange for absolutely nothing that we can offer him. And I've got great news for you. It's free. But it'll cost you everything you have. This is who Jesus is. This is his expectation for those that follow him. And it's my prayer that every person in this room knows that, knows that reality doesn't get caught up 
in the mundane tasks, but daily submits themselves to the lordship of Christ. Last time I preached, we were in the book of James, and I made the comment that the gospel should take a, a central place in my thoughts each and every day. So does the truth of the gospel have a central place in your life as you go, as you go about doing the things that you do? Are you at a place in life right now where you're just at the point of kind of throwing your hands up? Man, okay, I don't, I don't know what you're supposed, I'm not, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with what you're telling me right now. I'm simply saying submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus and recognize that the incarnation all the way up to the crucifixion, to the resurrection, to the ascension has secured your place before the righteousness of God because you now possess Christ's righteousness. Throw yourself at the grace and mercy that only Jesus can provide you. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 13 right there. Children born not of natural descent. You and I may have those who are committed followers of Jesus within our own personal genealogies, but their faith cannot save us. nor of human decision. Every person is born into sin. It takes the supernatural act of God drawing us to Christ so that we can be saved. And not of a husband's will or effort. We can work as hard as we want, but no amount of human effort can produce spiritual life. John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up in the last day. This is an act of God drawing him to yourself. And maybe there's a person in this room today who feels that pull. Maybe there's a person in this day who thought they'd gotten it for their entire lives, but today they're just realizing, no, I don't. And that's what I need. Let me just say that you can have that. And I close with this. Charles Spurgeon says, if you have believed him, you ought to feel a joyful satisfaction in the assurance that Christ became incarnate in order that he might enable us to enjoy the fullness of the privilege of adoption into the family of his father who says to all believers, I will receive you and I will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Well may we rejoice if he has spoken thus to us. Let me pray for us today.
Father, I thank you for the providential preparation that led to the incarnation of your very son. Because he came to seek and save that which was lost. And that is every person in this room. That is every person online. That is every person in this town, in this county, in this state, in this country, in this world. And so I pray that you would help us to realize some things about this Advent season. If we have found ourselves in a lull, if we have found ourselves apathetic, if we have found ourselves lonely, if we have found ourselves in the midst of trouble within our marriage, if we have found ourselves in the midst of considering harming ourselves, I pray that the light and the life of Jesus would be applied to those wounds. Would you help us, Father, in the midst of a busy season where there's a lot going on to pause and to acknowledge the incarnation is one of the greatest things that we could possibly benefit from because it would ultimately lead to Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and ultimate return. I pray for these people as they begin to respond in just a few moments. Would you help us to hear your voice? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.